0: Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written.
1: This is where we answer your Bible questions. Temptation is not sin. It's when we yield ourselves to that thing. That's when it becomes sin.
0: I believe what this is, and I'm going to trust you. So what prophecies were they studying to help them know when the Messiah would come? That's a good question. And I think we've got a pretty good answer for you here. Hey there, and welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written with Wes Peppers. I'm John Bradshaw. We're answering your Bible questions. We love to do so. We thank you for submitting them. If you have one to ask, email us at lineuponline at iiw.org. West, you ready to go? We're ready to go. Okay, let's dive Great in with a, with a question from Eileen. Eileen asks, Did Enoch sin before he was taken to heaven, or Elijah? Did Enoch or Elijah sin before they were taken to heaven? What do you think? Both sinned before they went to heaven. Oh, wait a
1: minute. They were taken to heaven without seeing death. What yeah, do you think they, they, must, they uh, People think, well, they must have been perfect. No, they, they sinned, but they did the formula that God gives us, and that's confess your sins, repent of them, and they were restored with him. And I think the reason they were taken with God, up with God is because they, they drew so close to him that God decided it was time to take them. So, But it doesn't mean that they were perfect, that they never sinned. No, certainly all not. have sinned
0: and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and verse 23. And right.
1: certainly God
0: took them. They were an example as to what will happen with you if Jesus comes back uh, during your lifetime. Uh, translated from this earth, taken up to meet the Lord in the air, taken off to be with Him in heaven. Hey, that's fantastic. Uh, Moses, similar but different. Moses was raised from his grave taken to heaven um wonderful jesus is coming back going to take us to be where he is Sheila asks
1: what does the bible say about blasphemy well it says it's not good and don't do it don't do it and so you have a couple of examples in the bible of blasphemy sheila and one is in mark chapter 2 where jesus is accused of blasphemy but isn't guilty of blasphemy and that is the pharisees say why does this man speak blasphemies who can forgive sins but God alone, so for a person to claim to f- have the power the authority to forgive sin, the Bible calls that blasphemy it's blasphemy. the second one that's right, blasphemy, hands down, no doubt nobody has the authority to do that except for the one who died for our sins, which is Jesus, only he can do that, and there's really no need for anyone else to do it because he has everything we need. John chapter ten, a similar thing. Jesus says, "I and my Father are one again he gets accused of blasphemy for claiming to be God. Of course, he was God. The Pharisees denied that. So uh, for anyone else to make that claim, that would be considered blasphemy. Two definitions from the Bible. Hey, I really like this
0: because though blasphemy is a terrible thing and one shouldn't take God's name in vain, uh, one shouldn't claim the prerogatives of God. Notice what Paul writes in First Timothy chapter 1, and verse 17. Speaking of himself, who was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious, but I obtained mercy, he mm. writes. He says, because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. He obtained mercy. God is a forgiving God. He's ready to forgive, according to the Psalms, loves to forgive, and he even forgives blasphemy, which is really good news. Okay, here's a question from David. It's a, it's a, it's a thinking question. How was the book of Genesis written? since there wasn't any method to record this early history accurately.
1: Well, one is that it was handed down. That was a tradition that it was handed down verbally. The minds of those that were living closer to creation obviously had a greater capacity. They didn't forget things like we did. They had a greater capacity. That's that's one way that we can know that it was accurate. The second way is inspiration. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, So Moses wouldn't have been simply dependent on the handing down verbally from generations. God would have given him inspiration, and he would have written that. Now, I believe that if you'd have compared what Moses would have received from God by inspiration and what was handed down by generations i think they would have matched no doubt. i think they would have been the same no doubt. but the inspiration of scripture is very uh, is, is clearly stated that it is inspired and moses would have had that gift
0: second peter 1 verse 21 for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man but holy men of god spake as they were moved by the holy ghost so being inspired by god and this wasn't dictated god wasn't saying put a comma now capitalize the next word God was, this was thought inspiration, and they wrote, uh, as humans, the thoughts that God had impressed upon their minds, we can trust the Bible. It's absolutely reliable. Sure enough. Okay, but speaking of prophecy, as that last verse mentioned, here's one from Steve. How can we know that the 2,300-day-year prophecy begins with the issuing of the decree to restore Jerusalem? Now, this is the prophecy that stretches down to the time that the judgment begins, incorporated in there, is uh, directions to the anointing of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah, and the gospel going to the world. Uh, there's a lot in this 2300-day year prophecy, but the question about it is, how do we know when it begins?
1: Why don't you go ahead, Pastor West? Sure enough, there is a connecting passage in Daniel chapter 9, and a lot of people wrongly assume that the vision of Daniel 8, the 2300 days, And then the chapter, uh, the content in chapter 9 that they don't connect. But they do. Because you find in Daniel chapter 8 that he had the vision. He had the vision of the 2300 days. And then in the last verse of chapter 8, it says, I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. And afterward, I rose and went about the king's business. And I was astonished by the vision. Now you go in chapter 9 and Daniel begins to pray. He's praying for God's people, the Israelites, he's praying for uh, several different things here. And as he's praying, very interestingly, in verse 20, something happens. An angel appears to him. And the angel comes in in verse 21. It says, Yes, while I was praying in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision in the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, and informed me and talked with me and said... Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Mm -hmm. Understand what? Understand what? The vision that he had had previously. Because because he's wrestling with that. He didn't understand it when he got That's right. In chapter 9, in the early part, he's walking around the path wondering about the vision. He didn't understand it. Gabriel returns, because he had already seen him previously, and says, I've come to give you skill to understand. Verse 23, he says at the end of that verse... Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision." So very clearly, he came back to explain the vision he saw in Daniel chapter 8. We took the time to explain that because it makes the point that those two visions are connected, they are related to each other. So then he goes on and he says very simply, uh, he gives in verse 24, the time of the prophecy, the 70 weeks. And announcing the coming of the Messiah, and then in verse twenty-five, he gives the beginning of that of that prophecy. No, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the
0: commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Jerusalem. unto Messiah the Prince shall be, and in the time frame. Is and given. in the time frame, that's so the beginning. That the therefore, beginning. and understand that that's right. from that time mm-hmm. to the Messiah. Well, look, it doesn't have to be the beginning,
1: but but. It's logical that it is, and it works out mathematically. That's right. And, and prophetically. So that's how we know the beginning there, because he makes that appointment. He announces that, that event that would start that prophecy of time. Very clear. I like yeah. that. Thank you so much.
0: Hey, Iris asks a question. Did God ever command human sacrifice? Well, a little later, Iris writes, what's up with Jephthah? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to read from Judges 11, verse 30. Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, just just a little pause here. There was a time God asked Abraham to sacrifice a son, mm-hmm. but he stopped him. That's that right. was a test. He didn't want a human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So the question is here, because what happened is Jeff, that comes home and, and out the door of his house comes his daughter, and he says, "Okay, I've got to give you to God." A rash vow. Yes. It was rash. It was whatever, an impulse. Whatever, yeah, whatever comes out. How about he says, "I'll go and offer the best mm-hmm. cow I got," yeah. you know? No. But he didn't do that. Question is, did he offer his daughter as a burnt? offering i think we can know no because god forbids that Mm -hmm. that would be a pagan practice Mm -hmm. it probably would have had him met with revulsion rather than any respect as a leader Um, later on we talk about the girl and her friends walking upon the mountains bewailing her virginity it seems to me that she was dedicated to the lord
1: but not sacrificed not sacrificed and she just The Bible says she ended up living as a virgin in his house for the rest of her life, and she was never permitted to marry. And so that was, in a sense, the sacrifice. Obviously, it was a sacrifice for her to do that uh, because of the rashness and foolishness of her father, which he later regretted, and uh, he bewailed that as well. So that's very clear from the Bible. God does not require that. Sometimes humans have done it. Pagan religions practice that, but that's not how God operates in Christianity.
0: Here's one for you. Felicity asks a question that's almost guaranteed to cause one of the other of us to lose friends. Yes, yeah. many friends even. Felicity, thank you for that. We don't have enough friends as it is. And now we're going to lose friends over this question. Hey, We always have each other, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we have a friend. We have a friend in Jesus. We have a friend in Jesus. That's two. That's two. That's all we need. Okay, we're good. So Felicity asks, does God have an issue with drums being played in church during the praise and worship time? Now, we're going to try to be gentle about this. Clearly, timpani are drums. Very appropriate. Not inappropriate at all. So so let me, without you noticing, I want you to notice this, let me pivot. Deftly, I hope. Without you even realizing I did it. The bigger issue is the question of music. Mm-hmm. Then you've got to pull back from that and go, where does culture start and stop? And what's appropriate for God? I don't think anybody wants us to go back and only use instruments that were used in Bible times. I don't think that would be right. That would be tough. Some people have no problem with it at all, but I, I find it really hard that when the Bible says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, that God really means music that you cannot differentiate from a nightclub. Mm-hmm. or a rock concert, impossible. Music that makes you react physiologically in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Music that, uh, call, that is, is in fact designed to elicit certain responses, physical, emotional responses. I'd hate to say something like, well, it should only ever be an organ and a piano, because once you get in there, you've opened up a can of worms, and I wouldn't say that. But I'd love it if people would exercise some judgment on this and think, hmm, if it looks like a duck and smells like a duck and sounds like a duck and it's probably a duck, if it looks like the devil's rock music or rap, I'm not, not big on that either, and it sounds like it and it acts like that, it causes people to respond like it, maybe it's not something that you'd bring to God in worship. Mm-hmm. Have a word of wisdom to add to that, or you want to hang me out to dry?
1: <laughs> it was tempting, but no, I'll, I'll, I'll join in with you. Thank um, you. Yeah, we we'll, got to back each other up here. But you know, um, it's interesting that many people will almost copy what the world, the style of music, the world would have, but they say they don't say, God, what would you have? Let's just let's just go ahead and grab something that's available to us instead of actually stopping and intelligently thinking what kind of music would God have, and it's a music that's going to elevate God. It's not a music that's seeking to to please our own internal whatever passions, desires, longings, but it's a music that's going to honor God. And you know, you can I think it's. I think it's pretty easy honestly to listen to a certain kind of music and wonder is this really what god is looking for? Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty easy to do that if it's a, if it's music that's that's putting certain thoughts in our minds or as you said eliciting responses from us that we wouldn't normally do in a regular setting. I think god wants music to be thoughtful, he wants it to be pleasant, he wants it to be uplifting. He also doesn't want it to be Funeral-type music. No. We've been to churches where it sounds like a funeral. Oh, yeah. It should be good and lively, and, and, and uh, but, but worshipful, thoughtful, spiritual. I had a question for you.
0: Transport yourself back to the 1930s. Imagine you're in the 1930s, and someone says, I'm doing the music today in church, and it's some full-on Church-shaking rock music. Mm -hmm. Clearly no one's ever heard it because it's the 1930s. What do you think someone would say, oh, we were just so edified and blessed. That just sounds so holy. Or do you think somebody would say, what in the... (laughs) What is that? It's that, right. Mm -hmm. Now, come up to 2020s, to the 2020s. Mm -hmm. Why don't people say the same thing about that music today? Because the culture has conditioned them to accept that music. Because we're used to it. That's right. Yeah. Now somebody might take a look at my argument and say, well, of course they're going to say that because, the co-, you know, yeah. no one was exposed to that then. I was in a church once. It wasn't, uh, there was no worship going on. I just happened to be in the building. And a little girl went by and she had some headphones and she was listening to something. And I just said, hey, what are you listening to? She was helping her parents because they cleaned the church. She's I'm listening to Queen. Mm. I said, oh. you are? She's, yes, my dad's favorite band. Mm. Ask yourself, ask yourself then. So when those guys are choosing the praise and worship songs, who are they trying to please most? God or them? Typically, I heard a wise man say to me, much theology is autobiographical. Much of the praise and worship reflects not primarily the will of God, but the will of people. And what you've educated yourself to appreciate and like and and so on. Now, having said all of that, I don't want to go to war with you. I just don't. And if you disagree with me, God bless you. Let's be friends. I don't think we need to cause offense or leave blood on the carpet over this question. But we did answer it, yes, and we were pretty yes. honest about it.
1: Yes, I that's mean right. we
0: were honest about
1: it. I think the Bible, yeah, the Bible is pretty clear. There's principles to follow principles. and those types of things, and
0: yeah. whatsoever
1: things are true, honest, yes. just, pure, lovely, that's and a right. good report. Okay, that's right. Okay,
0: okay. There's more in just a moment. I hope you'll stay with us after the break. More of your questions. This is line upon line, brought to you by It Is Written. The Bible is filled with stories of people who took a leap of faith. Gideon was asked by God to lead an army of just 300 against an innumerable foe. And he did, and he was triumphant. Noah was asked by God to build an ark, a boat, so he and his family could ride out a storm in a world where rain had never before fallen. And he did, and he and his family and the world was saved. Life can be like that. Sometimes you have to take a leap of faith. After you've received all the necessary instructions, after the equipment has been checked, you take a leap of faith. Grow your faith in God and in His Word. Don't miss The Leap of Faith, brought to you by It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Line Up Online, brought to you by It Is Written. We are answering your Bible questions. Wes, we have a question here from Darren, who says, Who are the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11? How can we identify that? Now, this could take forever. I don't want it to take
1: forever. Sure enough. Sure how, do enough. We, how do we get to the heart of this? Very simply. Uh, it talks about the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, and there are people who have actually called our office and said, I'm one of the two witnesses, mm-hmm. and the other one is so-and-so or yeah. some other person. Yeah, Were they right? It, it, they were rightly wrong. Rightly wrong. That's right. Yeah. And so you find very clearly in there, it talks about the uh, olive trees and the lampstands. In Zechariah chapter 4, you can read through that, verses 4, I'm sorry, verses 2 and on. uh, Very clearly the Bible says that it describes those two olive trees, and it says that these are the Word of God. And so traditionally, we have believed that the two witnesses are the Old and the New Testament. There's some other components to the prophecy in chapter 11 that back that up even more, which we don't have time to go through in a short program here. But pretty confidently, we believe that that's the Word of God, the Old and New Testament. And why wouldn't it be? The two witnesses of God are the Word of God. Amen. Jesus says, search the Scriptures, they are they that testify of me.
0: Yosef asks a question. Yosef, when Jesus died and was placed in the tomb, did he go to the spirit prison and preach the gospel? Did he go to the spirit prison and preach the gospel? We're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll find out Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. 1 Peter chapter 3, I think we begin in verse 18. Let's read this. The Bible says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing. Now, two little phrases that you look at. He was quickened by the Spirit, by which he went, So whoever Jesus spoke to, he did it through the Holy Spirit. And when did he do it? In the days of Noah. Now, what you got is people who believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he laid in the tomb, and then somehow, while he was dead and sleeping in the tomb, he went and preached to spirits. I've heard creative preachers talking about Jesus entering into hell. And the demons fled, and the devil looked, and people quaked, and the walls shook, and here came Jesus. Make a good movie, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. And he walked up to the devil and snatched the keys right off a of belt loop. Yeah. It's good theater.
1: And 30 minutes into it, people realize he stopped reading from the Bible 30 minutes yeah, ago. Yeah,
0: It's good theater. Yeah. There's nothing biblical about it. Not one thing.
1: So did Jesus. And and now our questioner doesn't
0: ask where, but it's typically said that he went to hell, Mm -hmm. broke to the lost people, or something like that. Listen, you you know where Jesus went when he was in the grave? Nowhere. And why was that? Because he was dead. Sunday morning he woke up and he came out of the grave. In between time he had not been on
1: safari Anywhere at all. If he had been, he didn't really die. He just went somewhere else. Yeah, very clearly that. The passage is clear, isn't it? It answers It's very clear. He was speaking through the preaching of Noah by the Holy Spirit to the people that Noah preached to before the flood. That's very clear. Those that were in prison, the prison is the prison of sin. They were in they were in slavery to sin, and God was trying to free them from that by getting them to accept Him, which they did not. And uh, so pretty clear. problem with pretty what clear. you said, though,
0: is that it's not as exciting. It's not as exciting. <laughs> as Jesus yeah. walking through the front yeah, door right. of hell, yeah. kicking that door yeah. open, yeah. demons running in every direction.
1: Oh, man. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That's what the Bible says. I, just, I think it's more <laughs> exciting, honestly, because the truth is always better than, than a lie. That's right. And, and what could be more exciting than somebody being freed from sin oh, responding amen. to the gospel? Amen. You know, that's, that's the power yeah. of it.
0: But some of the sideshow acts that pass as Christian preaching sometimes, it's just yeah. it's a little bit regrettable. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, Shane asks a great question. And by the way, there's no hierarchy of questions. If you have a question, it's a great question. Mm-hmm. great question. But I'm excited by Shane's question. I try so hard to be with God and obey His commands, and every time I confess, I find myself having trouble committing the same sins over and over again. So here's the question. How can I enter the gates of heaven if I keep trying hard and repent and still fall short of the glory of God? Shane, we are grateful for you. We rise up and call you blessed for answering, su- asking such a really good question. How, how do I go to heaven if I keep falling short? first thing we've got to have you understand is that romans 5 and verse 20 said we're sin abounded grace did much more about the bible tells us that by grace are you saved through faith not by your works the bible says if you confess jesus will forgive you and the bible says that jesus will make a new creation out of you the problem you're dealing with shane is that you didn't immediately become enoch the time uh, at, at the moment that you accepted Jesus. Now, Wes could be that Shane needs to figure out some things. Sure. Um, if if the sin is alcohol, pull the alcohol out. Go to a twelve step program. Read some books if you need to. Uh, get an accountability partner. Be proactive. If the if the sin is internet stuff that you shouldn't be looking at cut the cable or 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 get some software to block that and and have someone very close to you as an accountability partner looking at your search history for example and at the same time reading the word of god and praying and memorizing the promises of god you will start to get the victory because the bible promises that jesus is able to keep you from falling jude verse 24 and in first corinthians chapter 10 paul says that with every temptation god will make a way of escape the thing is man it's not instantaneous you're instantaneously saved but you grow as a believer. If your feet are in the Word of God like roots in a soil, if your mind is in the Word of God, if Jesus is in your heart, you're growing. Shane, grow. Let that be your focus. Pray, read, memorize, fast if you need to. Be sure you're in church. You go to Bible study groups, and you'll bring into your life more and more and more of God. You're excluding the stuff that's going to drag you down, and you're hanging on to Jesus, and growing, and a lot of people just
1: don't understand that concept. Yeah, you know, Shane, I appreciate this, and, and I think probably every person on the planet struggled with this. And yep. y- You see where you are, and you see where you want to be, and you see the gap in between, and it seems hopeless. But I want you to think about the gap of where you are now and where you were when Jesus first found you. Amen god what god has begun in you he will finish now one thing i'm troubled by in your question is you say here there's a little phrase i keep trying hard yes yes i'm glad you picked up on that and you are doing this possibly in your own strength i want to read a verse to you it's in philippians chapter 2 and verse 13 beautiful for it is god who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure it says that god's will is for you to do well And God puts that desire in your heart. But you've got to pray for it. You've got to ask for it. God's a gentleman. He's not going to come bustling in. But if you're praying every day, God, change my desires, change my heart, change my my will, you give your will to God, and He can empower it with His strength and give it right back to you, and you can gain victory. That doesn't mean that you'll be perfect from that prayer on. But you're going to continue to grow in him and he'll get the job done. Trust him. You know, greatest batter in the history of
0: baseball, a fellow named Ted Williams. His lifetime batting average was 344. One year he had an incredible 406, which meant that for every time he went up to bat, he got a hit four times out of 10. That's not four pitches out of 10, it's four at bats out of 10. That meant even though he's the greatest in the history of the sport, the vast majority of the time, He was unsuccessful. And you're not expecting to be successful every time you swing your spiritual bat, are you? Now, baseball is not Christianity and and, and faith. It's a difficult comparison. But the fact is, you are growing. And should you swing and miss, you don't want to be discouraged about that because there's going to be another pitch along in a moment. If you swing and miss, hang in there with Jesus. He will grow you, you see. And He'll do the work in you that you could never do in your life. The idea, don't become discouraged hanging there with Jesus. Absolutely. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us, Wes. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you again next time for more of Line upon Online brought to you by It Is Written.